podcast where we talk to people from the world of audio about their ideas, opinions, and methods. In this episode of Signal Path, we head down to Studio B of Electrical Audio and wax nostalgic with Steve Albini about a gig from 1986 and the necessity of creating one's own community. This is Signal Path. Thank you for taking the time. Listen to those flat acoustics, huh? I can't, I can't hear, I can't hear it. Yeah, right, exactly. There's no, uh, no coloration, no, no coloration. You were, used to record people, I think, in your house. Yeah, I had a house about a mile from here, and I had a studio in that house. And the studio that we're, that we're in now, Studio B's control room, is essentially the control room of that house studio, moved to this location. So all this gear that you see, this console. Those tape machines, those were in the attic of the house on Francisco Street. And when this studio was finished in the build-out, we literally just unbolted everything from over there, brought it over here, installed it over here, flipped the switch, and started making records. Wow. And why did you just, when did you make that commitment? I'm sorry, it's the year? Um, we bought the building in December of 95. Okay. And then uh, the first session was in April of 97. So it was about a year, a little over a year um, in build out to get this studio running. Studio A wasn't completed for another year after that. Um, but Studio B was completed in April of 97. And then I started living here as well in, in June of 97. Um, the cost of finishing everything was you know, beyond my expectation, and so I ended up ha having to sell my house. And I sold my house to a friend, uh, and that money got plowed into the studio. And uh, from, from then on, it's basically just been self-sustaining. Like The money made at the studio goes back into the studio and pays for the operation of the studio. That's wonderful. So it's been a going concern for about 20 years now. We had our 20th anniversary last year. Wow. It was great. We threw a little party for ourselves, had some bands and a Fantastic. cake. It was great. Well, it's a, it's a iconic institution in Chicago. It's become in the last 20 years. Well, thank you. I, my, my goal when we built the place, when I bought this place, I realized that I was, gonna, I was making a commitment so like for like the next 20 years and potentially for the rest of my life, I'm going to be here making records in this building. And that commitment was that if I do it well, it will carry on through that whole span as a resource for all of the musicians who were still my peers and my friends, you know. And I feel good about the fact that we've maintained that position, that we are a resource for this community of musicians that I've been a part of and that has enriched my life for since I moved here, you know. So since 1980, I've been embedded in the music scene in Chicago, and I have been supported by that scene, and I have tried to give back to the scene as much as, as possible. And before I had a studio, I was doing things like putting on this show that you described and putting out records from other bands and, um, you know, doing my part, holding up my end of, of the stick, basically. And then... As I became, as it, my focus sort of narrowed to being a recording engineer, I concentrated on that as my one thing. The one thing that I can contribute uniquely is that I have a lot of experience recording live music of all kinds that hopefully makes me useful to that 
community that has given me so much satisfaction, so much pleasure. Absolutely. You know? yeah. Rather than try to go through the whole uh, nine yards of uh, your life and your work, I thought I would um, just hone in on uh, a particular show uh, that I saw in 1986, and I brought some rock and roll ephemera today to uh, help jog your memory. We could talk about that show. And I only want to use that show as a sort of entryway to talk about how you kind of use that to create your own community. And this was back in the, the heyday of the great... Reagan 80s. So let me go back to this night in uh, 1986. I'll tell you what I can remember about this show, or what I, I talked to my friend Jim Valentin, who drove us there, what he remembers about the show, and then maybe you can tell me what you remember, because it's a long time ago, and you probably did a lot of these shows, but maybe some of this will jog your memories. Um, and there were two sets, and the first show started at 6 o'clock, so we, it was uh, scratch acid. Uh, all our memories of that was just how incredible uh, David Sims was. Uh, and was that the show where he had, like, fake poo in his pants and he pulled out handfuls of fake poo and rubbed it on people? I don't recall that. I, th I want to say it was man. cookie dough. I, th I wanted to say that he had, had a tube of cookie dough in his pants, and at some point he pulled out fake poo, which was cookie dough, and uh, rubbed it on people. That's what I want to say, but I could be wrong about that. You were taking money at the door. Okay. Which I thought was... That sounds about that right. Was, uh, it was like, oh, the... The guy that we're going to see is also the guy at the door, and it turns out he's the guy that made the poster and rented the hall and did every aspect of it. But um, and we had, like I said, we had uh, we had to get some we had to get some change in order to pay the five dollars, which wasn't a lot, but I don't know what my minimum wage in those days was. It was probably half that or something. But uh, we paid in quarters, and according to my friend's memory, you asked us if we had robbed an arcade. Uh, there was a video arcade across the street on Belmont Avenue. I want to say it was called Dennis's Place. Maybe? Dennis's Place for games. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think I remember that. Yeah. And so I just assumed that somehow you had that you had <laughs> robbed school children going to Dennis's Place. The guitarist for Killdozer was wearing a bazooka T-shirt as shorts, so <laughs> okay. he had his arms through the legs and then he tied it off so it was like upside down and we had seen them before because they, they were playing a lot around at that time and he he did his whole guitar in his face thing Remember oh, that? Yeah. Like he would like balance the guitar and play like Sweet Home Alabama oh yeah 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 go down to the floor and and then of your guys set I remember is um, well taunting San, your taunting Santiago about his taking time to tune he seemed to tune between like every song and he he had this I mean, it was good natured Whatever, but it was, uh, he had this fretboard spray that he was using up and down his fretboard between each song. <laughs> and he would just like, he would like, I think he went through three or four cans as wow. he was like spray and spray wow. and then spray and then throw it down. And then you'd be like, Are you ready? Okay. And you'd launch it to the next thing. But this was 1986. So I think it might have been playing, a gimmick. I think it was a gimmick. Yeah. yeah. But it was, it was a, it was a memorable gimmick. I don't remember that at all. Okay. That's interesting. Let me tell you my favorite. Santiago moment. When Santiago was still in Naked Raygun, before they had put their first record out, um, they were playing at a basement club in Rogers Park, um, on the periphery of Rogers Park in Uptown, called COD. It was on the corner of Devon and Sheridan, and you had to go, there was no sign. You had to go past a um, like a five and dime store. And then there was a, a stairwell that went downstairs, and at the bottom of the stairs there was a sign that said COD. And th this was clearly a basement that was not intended to be 
a business that had been converted into a sort of a makeshift bar and there was a performance space and there was a plastic sheet between that was hung up between the bar and and the performance space and but then they had a Donkey Kong machine <laughs> so anyway I, I saw Naked Ray Gun playing and uh, Santiago was tripping on acid and he was wearing fuzzy purple like monster feet boots that went up to his knees normal punk rock attire plus purple fuzzy monster feet boots and his guitar had the most incredible droning underwater sound there's a sound that like if you're familiar with the way guitars work the neck pickup has more bass than the tr than the bridge pickup so he was on the neck pickup of his Telecaster, so it was very deep, sort of booming sound. And he was playing through an acoustic 160 bass amplifier. And uh, he had the bass control and the volume wound all the way up, and the treble control and the mid-range turned all the way down. There was a, a little, I want to say there was a graphic equalizer on it, and he also had all the treble turned down and all the bass boosted on the graphic equalizer. and. Uh, so it was just this subsonic rumble. It wasn't even it wasn't clearly identifiable as guitar. Um, but he also had a fuzz tone. So there was this sense of this sort of saturated low frequency penetrating roar that was indistinct and unidentifiable as guitar. And he instantly became my favorite guitar player. Now that wasn't your percolator? No. Uh, I got a harmonic. The harmonic percolator is a fuzz tone that I got from Jay Tiller, who was he. There was a, a record combination record store pawn shop head shop it's in Milwaukee called Coach. Record Head, and Jay Tiller uh, was Flambeau. yeah. He's the singer and guitar player and Couch Flambeau, and we'd become friends, and years before like. Right around the time I was putting out the Big Black record, first Big Black record, he was putting out the first Couch Flambeau record, and I liked his record, he liked my record, we corresponded, we met each other, we ended up being friends. Anyway, um, and he was working at this pawn shop, head shop, record store, and he called me one day and he said, hey, this weird fuzz tone just came in, you should, you should definitely try it. And it was great. It was like fuzz tone that behaved differently from other fuzz tones that I had heard up to that point. Um, since then, you know, there's a, there's a whole squad of there's a whole fuzz scientists out there now. So like any imaginable fuzz tone is available now. But at the time, there were very few distortion pedals available right. on the market, and they all were sort of of a type, like slightly crunchy but not radical. And this was the first radical sound that I had heard out of a pedal. And uh, so I became enamored with it, and I I used it in uh, at that point I was in Rateman. I used it in Rateman a lot. And uh, it's, you know, I, it's the only pedal that I use to this day. Jay Tiller later became a uh, correctional officer and then a sheriff. But he, he's just retired from sheriffing, and now he's a man of leisure. Wow. I expect there to be more Couch Flambeau albums as a result. Interesting. Yeah.
it's reading the wholesome, and uh, you talk about your percolator in there, hmm. and how you couldn't play. You don't use it on every song, but you couldn't play guitar without it. Yeah. And um, I guess it still it still holds true for you. Yeah, I use it for yeah, I use it's it for about ten seconds a night, thirty seconds a top, thirty seconds <laughs> right. tops. Yeah. Um, uh, the other thing we remember about that that I think has become synonymous with your stage persona is your strap, which um, it's lovely, but I think it was the first time we ever saw it. And, of course, it had the fu very functional aspect of giving you both hands free. Yeah. I started wearing my strap around my waist when I was a bass player. As a teenager, I, I went to the music store to buy a bass because I wanted to learn how to play bass. And I wanted to learn how to play bass because it had fewer strings than a guitar, and so I presumed it would be easier, and I wanted to get in a band in a, in a hurry. So I figured, well, I can learn the four-string part way easier than the six-string part. So I went to the music store, and the cheapest bass that they had at this music store was a PV T40 bass, which had just come out, right? And uh, so this would have been 1978, 79, somewhere at 78. And I don't know if you've ever picked up a Hartley PV-designed PV T40, T40 bass, but they weigh about as much as a Volkswagen. They're like, they're made out of swamp ash, and the body is about three inches thick. And all the hardware on it is brass and giant. And it, so everything on it is like super burly and super heavy. And I think, and this may have even been publicly articulated by Hartley Peavy at some point, but I think the idea was that it would be an inexpensive but heavy instrument. And because it was heavy, it would seem more substantial to the person buying it. So in this sort of, you know, mm -hmm. it, odd redneck thinking of of the PV company, if you're, if as long as it weighs enough, you'll feel like you're getting your money's worth. So the PV T40 bass is, you know, a, a real piece of work. They sounded fine, but it was also incredibly heavy. And wearing it around my neck, my around my shoulder, my neck and my shoulder would get sore and hurt, and I would get tired, and I wouldn't want to play it. So one day I just, as a, on a lark, I tried wrapping my strap around my waist and I instantly preferred it. Because I had all, I don't know if you're, if you're a motorcycle rider, but the concept of sprung weight versus unsprung weight, it's easier to carry sprung weight than unsprung weight, right? Sprung weight meaning weight that's above the suspension. Um, anyway, uh, so, at that point, the base was down below my center of gravity, and it was held in place, and both of my arms were free, and where, no matter how I turn, where I turned, the base always stayed in the same relative position to me. If you're wearing a guitar around your neck and you turn, you sort of have to bring the guitar with you, right? Um, it, you have to sort of actively control your guitar to keep it from flopping around. When it's strapped to you like a, you know, a, a piece of apparel, then it, it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, so I found that liberating. I loved it. And I just carried on doing it that way. And so I, there was a, it was an odd little quirk that I started when I was 15 or 16 and that I just carried on doing for my whole perfect. I still do it. I still wear my guitar around my waist. Do you, do you make extras or how do you fashion that? I mean, um, you can just use a normal guitar strap. It has to be a quite long guitar strap, but okay. it's just a normal guitar strap. I used to, when I was in Big Black, for example, I, I used to... 
wider. This yeah, He's Santiago and I had both started wearing our guitars wrapped around our waist, and we went to there was a um, a leather shop uh, uh, called Male Hyde in Chicago's fabulous Boys Town neighborhood, and their stock and trade was. Uh, harnesses and vests and you know cop caps and things like that like typical sort of leather bear kind of gear um, but we gave them like the description of a guitar strap it needs to be you know five feet long about three or four inches wide slots cut on each end and they were like oh yeah you can have that I'll have that for you in 15 minutes or whatever and it was it was great. It was great having a resource like that where you could get something like that made on the spot. You know that was super great. Um, I stopped using the male hide straps just because I discovered that they make straps long enough that you could just okay. use a conventional strap. And if you're going to lose something, I'd rather lose something that costs fifteen dollars sure. than something that costs eighty dollars. You know. So uh, you're playing in Big Black. You've you've got a couple record or EPs under your belt. At this yeah. point, you guys had self. Published or those were Homestead. We put out. I put out the Lungs EP on my own. Um, the Bulldozer EP. There was a some guys from the University of Chicago wanted to start a record label, and uh, called Fever Records, and they put out a. They they co-released that record with Ruthless Records, which was a the cooperative that had put out the Lungs record, the first record. That was a cooperative of um, a number of bands. It was uh, The Effigies, Naked Ray Gun, Big Black, um, and then very briefly there was a, um, a spin-off of, a spin-off band uh, with, that had some members of Strike Under and some members of Naked Ray Gun. Um, I'm drawing a blank on what the name of that band was, but there was another band that was involved. Um, and we released records cooperatively, meaning each band was responsible for paying for and pressing and printing on their own records, but they would be advertised collectively. And there was one uh, one post office box that would collect all the money, and we had a bank account, and then all, so every you know all the money would be collected in one place, but it would get divided up based on whose records had sold and that sort of. Do thing. you remember who ran that? Was that it was either it was really loosely organized. All the bands. John Babin, who was the manager of the Effigies, did it some of the time. I did it some of the time. Jeff Pizzotti did it from Naked Raygun. Did it some of the time. And then ultimately, all those other bands kind of dropped out of it. And then I kept the name Ruthless Records, and I released a few more records on my, uh, where the record label was basically mine. But I was really bad at it, and I'm. Yeah, um, one of the zines I brought here today, the the wholesome zine from '86, uh, says uh, you. They ask if um, you're trying to avoid the business aspect of, and I think you say the same thing there. You're like, I'm really bad at it, but unless you don't want to get screwed, you kind of have to keep your fingers in every aspect of the operation. Yeah, that was a th that was one of the principal lessons of being involved in the punk rock scene was that. Um, if you do things on your own, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. But you, if you actively learn from those mistakes, the next time you do it, you'll be better. And no one is going to be charging you for the privilege of making mistakes on your behalf. You know, and that that by itself seems like a good enough reason to try to do it all. Um, and it's also that like 
the margins are were even then the margins were so slim. Like if, you know, I don't remember what that show cost, like five bucks. The the margins are so so slim yeah. that if you're diluting the profit by paying percentages to people to do some aspect of the business for you, then there's just nothing left when it's all over with, and, the, and it very quickly becomes a losing proposition. So you kind of have had to do everything yourself. Um, you know, you're you're dealing with expenses that don't get less just out of sympathy, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So none of the people that you're working with are sympathetic to you, like, oh, you're in a band? I will charge you less to print these posters. No, they, you know, they they don't care if you're a grocery store or, or a punk rock band. Everybody right. has to pay the same, right? Um, you know, or just finding a venue to play in was problematic. Like there were, you know, there weren't many places in that where we were, there, there weren't many places that we wanted to play because there was a lot of sort of, uh, internal scene politics associated with a lot of the venues that we didn't want to participate in. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, to a, a significant degree, a lot of the venues were crooked, meaning that you could make a deal that on paper seemed like it was perfectly reasonable. But then when it came time for settlement, you know, suddenly a bunch of extra charges would appear or you'd be charged for some broken equipment that you didn't break or the headcount would be off or, you know, there'd be some misunderstanding about the ticket price. And so they had to discount half of the audience mm -hmm. on paper, you know. Manager that, cocaine surtax. Like all, all this stuff was all sort of part and parcel of working in a cash business with people who are unscrupulous. So... You can defend against that to a degree. There, there, there were mechanisms that you could use to defend against that. Uh, one of the defense mechanisms is to just work outside those circles. Like if you don't play at those venues, then those venues have no power over you. And you, like, I was officially banned from one venue in town called the Metro, and I, I was officially banned because I had told in print the story of them ripping off my band, right? It, it wasn't a, you know, a libelous accusation. It was the literal story of events. They it didn't matter because we didn't want to play in those places anyway. Place, yeah. But I was banned in the sense that I couldn't even buy a ticket. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they had a little picture of me up in the, in the <laughs> ticket booth. Do not allow this dude inside the building. Uh, the the funniest uh, the funniest sort of effect of that came when I had booked as a promoter I had booked Sonic Youth into that venue and they had stay, they were staying at my house and we brought all their gear down to the venue and the the venue had just instituted this ban on Steve Albini. Uh, in the time between when I had booked Sonic Youth in, in there and when uh, the show date came. So I'm carrying a Fender Twin, and we walk through the front door, and a security guy literally puts his hand on my chest and says, you can't go in there. <laughs> and I knew what was up as soon as he said that. So I was like, all right, guys, I'll see you after the show. <laughs> somewhere that you learned uh, poker from your great-grandmother? My great-grandmother, Granny McKeever. 
She, and she taught all of us kids poker, and, but then I carried on playing, you know, through college, and then after college, uh, we, there was always a, a home game to play in somewhere. And then in the '90s, when Hold'em uh, started being televised, then there was a kind of a frenzy where people were a lot more people were getting into the game, and and. Uh, Suddenly, there was money to be made. You know, up until that point, poker was a very, very small community. The people who played poker were there weren't that many of them, and the poker games didn't run all the time, and there weren't a lot of public games. Um, and then once poker started being showed on television, it became a lot more popular, and a lot more games were available, and the popularity sp spread worldwide. And so, like, I could play on tour or if I was out of town working on a session, for example, I could. there were a lot more places to play. What did you just win? I won um, a bracelet. A bracelet is when you win an event at the World Series of Poker, they give you a bracelet. And so there are bracelet events and non-bracelet events. The non-bracelet events are not part of the World Series of Poker, but they may be concurrent with it. Um, the There are several levels of tournament. There are what are called championship events, which are $10,000 buy-ins. So like the main event at the World Series of Poker is a $10,000 buy-in. And you play No Limit Texas Hold'em, and that tournament takes a week or more to conclude. The other bracelet events typically take three days, sometimes four, but typically three days to conclude. And I played in one of those events for Seven Card Stud, and I won my first bracelet this summer. Wow, congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. I mean, you, you, I go every year. I've been going for probably for 10 years to, to the World Series in Las Vegas. It's, I don't play tournaments otherwise. That's the one time a year when I'm playing tournaments. The rest of the time I, when I'm playing cards, I'm just playing cash games. Uh, and you go, I mean, I go every year and I try hard every year. But it never occurred to me that I would win a bracelet. I always thought, you know, my ambition was that I'd, I wanted someday to be at a final table so that I could be among the last players in an event because I, you know, I, I feel like that would be really sad. That would, would have been very satisfying to me. And when I made the final table, I was super stoked. I felt like, well, this is great. Anything good that happens from here on out is gravy. And then when it got down to the final three or four, I, I started to feel like I, you know, like if I continue to play well and if I don't get coolered really badly here, like I have a shot at winning this, you know. But it, I didn't, I didn't seriously think about winning until I actually won. Like I was just playing hand after hand after hand, concentrating on the game, concentrating on what was happening. And then at some point the tournament stopped because I had all the chips, and then that's when I, that's when I realized that I'd won, you know. Did that money go back into the studio then, or is that? Well, I had investors in my okay. tournament package, so oh, I wow. uh, I paid those guys their piece, and then um, I spent some of it on some small luxuries for my wife, <laughs> and then the some of it went to pay. I mean, in the short term, went to pay for some needs here at the studio, and then you know I still have a little tiny wedge left over. And when you're playing, you don't uh, you don't have sunglasses on, or do you? Do you have the earplugs in, or I wear earplugs. You do, yeah. Okay. Uh, I find the the just the general noise of a casino with the constant clanging of the uh, slot machines and the chatter and the people screaming about their bad beats and 
than the inane conversations that transpire. Like I find that stuff just incredibly grating. So I wear earplugs at the table and I, I can still hear that things are happening and I can concentrate on something and listen to it if I want to. But just the, the constant battering pressure of noise is lessened. I wear earplugs in a lot of situations, actually. Like, I mean, I'm aware that as I get older, my hearing must be deteriorating because everyone's hearing deteriorates as they age, right? So I am somewhat protective of my hearing. Um, when we're on tour, for example, I'm wearing earplugs pretty much all day in the noisy environments of being in a van, driving down the highway, you know, loading equipment backstage, like getting everything together. There's a lot of ambient clatter and noise and and I I like having being sort of removed from that slightly. So I'm I'm wearing earplugs all the time. And you know, airports and air travel and that sort of stuff. It's a very noisy environment and I find that stimulation is not enlightening. Like I'm not learning anything from hearing all of that noise, so I just shut it out to the extent that I can. And I, I feel like that allows me to save the sort of conscious acuity that I use in the studio or in the band. I, I've saved that for those moments and I don't feel like my attention span or the sensitivity of my hearing has been squandered on this meaningless noise, you know. Just to put, let me make sure I understand this now. So you're saying throughout the day of like going on tour with shellac or traveling to the airport, you're going to have earplugs on through that whole going on, up to going on stage part. Yeah. And then when I'm on stage, I'm not wearing earplugs. You're not wearing earplugs. Yeah. I mean, our stage volume is not crushingly loud. Um, and that's by design. Like we, we use the same amps pretty much for every show. Gotcha. We are the same physical distance from each other for every show. Mm -hmm. The monitor arrangement that we use is very simple. We don't use any wedges. We don't have any in-ear monitors. We don't have any anything that could potentially be a, cause a lot of volume on stage. And there's some dynamics, right? I mean, you guys aren't like a whole wall of noise for an entire hour. Right. I mean, the and the loudest thing on stage is Todd's Todd. cymbals. You know, our, our drummer's cymbals are the loudest thing. And if you can stand being in, acoustically next to a drum kit, then you could stand to be on stage with us, you know. Cool. I mean, I'm not inviting you up. I'm just saying. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. We'll be back soon with more in-depth interviews featuring artists, engineers, and professionals from all nooks and crannies of the music industry muffin. This is Signal Path. Signal Path.